Okay, so first, I'm not in uniform, and that may disturb some of you. Um, my normal uniform of jeans with a button-up, you know, thing going. But here, you have to do this, so when your kids get you something really nice, um, you, have to, you have to show it off and share it. This actually isn't for my kids. Um, our staff, the way we do our Christmas gifts is that um, we each draw a name, and then we buy a T-shirt that we think best exemplifies um, the person whose name we drew. And so um, it shows how we know each other well and how we can make fun of each other and have a lot of fun with that. And so um, Carly um, drew my name, and so because um, I'm apparently such an enigma, you're not going to find a shirt that just nails it. So she had to create a shirt. Um, she's an artist, for those of you who don't know, she had to create a shirt um, and instead of saying life is good, it says life isn't fair um, in the same <laughs> font. So she knows me well. Um, so it, is, it also is fine, especially on today with, um, with just one service and even a little, even uh, we're, we're a casual church. Um, we don't, we don't the, the false dichotomies that sometimes the world or even each other try to place on each other think is often a mistake. Casual and sacred are not contradictory to one another. Um, that's not something that we emphasize a lot. Um, I grew up in a mindset of Sunday best, um, which was there's a healthy version of that, which is that you know you want to you want to come and worship God in spirit and in truth. You want to engage with each other well and intentionally. Um, but my personal opinion is that Sunday is when we should not have to be at our best. Um, it's the one time when we shouldn't have to be at our best when we're around other brothers and sisters in Christ um, who can support us and hold us up. This is where we weep. This is where we crawl. Um, this is where we struggle. Um, that, that that makes total sense to me, that that would be the case. And again, there's a version of Sunday Best um, that, that may is totally healthy and totally appropriate. If you say, listen, I worship in spirit and truth best in a suit. Good, do that. Um, that's totally appropriate here. Um, we, we, my son used to rebel by periodically wearing a suit on Sunday morning. That was his, that's his version of, of Teenage Rebellion. And so... Um, uh, that which is totally fine. You want to wear a suit? Wear a suit. It is. It is. I, I think suits are awesome. Um, I don't own a lot of them, but I think they're really cool. And so, if that's something you that that helps you worship, do that. If that draws you near to Christ, or that helps you relate to each other, do that. That's totally appropriate. It's not necessary to worshiping in spirit and in truth, um, and not together. So, because that can be a barrier to some people, we would never want someone to distract with their finery or compete with their finery, nor would we want people to distract with their immodesty or compete with their immodesty. So the idea here is we're, we're all in this together, and, and, and by the way, we're all awful at it, um, trying to worship in spirit and in truth, that the spirit through us helping us worship um, uh, is so, it's such a powerful thing that anything that can remove a distraction from us is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, so we stay away from some of those false dichotomies. Another one of those, you may be someone who worships best, um, with your hands in your pockets, with your eyes closed, your eyes open, reading the words or not reading the words, with your hands in the air or standing or laying flat on your face, um, all of those are also fine. Whatever it is that allows you to worship in unity and in spirit and in truth, that's, that's hard enough, I think. Um, we're bad enough at that. Um, we're just really not good at this whole church thing, this whole community thing, um, we, we desperately need it, and we are at the same time disastrously bad at it. Um, uh, we see that in our homes. We see that in our families. We certainly are going to see that in our churches. And that's a big part of what this is about. We, we are still figuring this all out together. We take worshiping our Lord joyfully, very seriously. We try not to take each other too seriously. And uh, that's part, I think, of what the Christian life um, looks like as we're able to accept each other's imperfections 
that we are frail, that we are fragile, um, that we are children of dust, um, that we all need, or most of us need to lose weight in the new year. So this is a, <laughs> this is part of just what it means to be human, um, to be the creatures who we are. So um, in great joy, we're going to look at this. These, these, this week and next week, we're going to look at our identity as who we are as a church, just as an individual church, some of our things. There's a lot of different directions we could go with this. I'm going to touch on a lot of them, be jumping around through some different scriptures on just what it means to be us, to be South Spring. A lot of that is also obviously, so I'm not going into our logo this year. I'm not going into the symbol. We may work that in at some point, but not today. Um, and so there's a lot of different directions we could go, who we are, why our name is what it is. And and the, the, like I said, the logo, the symbols, the, that kind of stuff, that's there. Today, what I'm going to be focusing on are what we call our three pillars um, and teaching through those a little bit. To start, though, before we can even jump into those pillars, here's fundamentally who we are. And I taught on what the church was a couple of years ago with just a few sermons, and it's, they were entitled, I think it was maybe actually a year ago about this time, We Are His. Um, that's really fundamentally what it means, we and his. That's what matters about church. That's what the church is, capital T, capital C, the church. We are his. That's what it means to be the church. Um, that's vitally important. That is true of this church also independently, individually as a church, as a body of believers. Um, we're not the only one like that in Tyler. There are a lot of fantastic churches in Tyler. About once a month, we try to put something in our flyers that go out that tells you about uh, bulletins of flyers, about things that are going on in other churches that you might want to be a part of. This church is not in competition with other Bible-teaching, God-glorifying churches. That is ridiculous. Um, that is such an absurd mindset. It should be like considered heresy to, be in con to consider ourselves in any way in competition with other great churches. And there are great ones. You may come and say, Chris, this is my passion. My passion is this ministry. And I may tell you, or Lance may tell you, or somebody else on staff or in leadership or your Sunday school teacher, your life group teachers may tell you, then this may not be the right church for you because we don't focus our energy there. We, have, uh, we, we would love to have that. If you want to try to make that happen, excellent. How do we make that happen? But the truth is there are other churches doing ministry better than we are all over this community, especially in specific ways. And you go, man, this is something I'm passionate about. We might go, good, then let's help you find the right church that that's where they're focusing their time and energy, money and resources. That's not, that's not, that's not, that sounds weird because you're used to people thinking in terms of competition between local churches, and we're not. Um, I consider it a great honor when someone leaves our church for the right reasons, when they leave this church because there's an opportunity to minister and they need to go practice that ministry someplace else, it's not a bad thing. I grieve. I hate to lose anybody. I love all you people. But the, but the truth is that may be part of what God calls us to do. That's not a bad thing. This is not our church. It is his. You're not, you, are, you are mine only in that I am the under-shepherd. There is an over-shepherd who, who is your real shepherd. That's how that works. Um, this is his church. We are in a position to do things that we think we that he would not have for us. This is hard. Um, it's hard to not feel like a, a sense of, well, who gets to decide what God says? So we do our very best to look to Scripture to guide us. But fundamentally, we submit to this truth. We confess, even before we know what all it means, because we don't have to know what all it means to submit to it, we confess to this statement, this is his church. Colossians 1.18 says this, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first here. His word is first here. This is, this is who we are. We are his. 
There may be a lot of different practical applications, church politics, whatever that we may disagree on, even among other churches in the community that do it differently. They may not be wrong. We may not be wrong. What would be wrong is for Christ to not be preeminent in the church. That would be wrong. Christ is preeminent here. We don't always know what that means. That's part of following a living God, is that we don't always know exactly what that means. He's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis would say, right? So, for example, one of our things, every, almost every time, either through prayer or song, when our leadership board meets, we sing or at least pray through the concepts of the song, Be Thou My Vision, which we'll be singing at, in a little bit. Yes, John? Yep, good. So, so you can look at the words and you can see what we sing, what we pray. Um, so this idea of, of, of that he is our vision, protect us from our vision, protect us from our best thought, protect us from our wisdom, protect us from our agendas. They're not trustworthy. Those are just peoples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said in one of the most offensive lines I've ever read in a book ever, God hates visionary dreamers. It's an offensive line. He then goes on to just say, because God has plenty of vision and plenty of dreams. What God needs is people who will get in touch with his visions and his dreams, not our own. And as, as painful as it is, I agree with him. That's what we're, that's, and that's what we fight for and what we try for. So we've got all these handbooks that we try to create to try to help us understand and talk through handbooks about church conflict and church discipline and life groups and missions and the protection of children and how we handle our staff and all that kind of stuff. If you ever want to see any of those, they're all available. They're always also being um, improved and upgraded. But these pillars are what undergird our ministry here. When, we, when we're having to evaluate things we do or don't do, we come back to these. And by the way, if you've been around very long at South Spring, you've heard these. You've even heard a sermon, you've heard sermons very similar to this. That's okay. Those of you who are business leaders out there know the core tenants, you have to get sick of them. Um, you just have to kind of hear them and hear them and hear them until you're so tired of them that you don't want to hear them anymore. That may be you today. I'm sorry. Um, but not very much. So at each, we dive into these each January. The first one is devotion. Devotion is one of my favorite concepts. We have so many false or weak versions of devotion in our culture, um, things like loyalty that are fine, but devotion is better. Um, without going into a lot of detail, the story in Scripture, the account in Scripture um, that I always turn to when I think of devotion is the fact that David had these 30 hand-picked men. They were called his men of valor or his mighty men. And uh, David was... Um, a, uh, the, a king who was wealthy enough to have 30 professional soldiers, 30 picked bodyguards. These would have been his leaders. Uh, these were the ones who went with him when no one else went with him. This was a cross between his generals and his secret service. Um, everyone else in his armies would have been farmers who he called together, and they would have been under the leadership of these 30. And within the 30, there were three who were very, very famous. Um, these th they actually are so, they're so famous and so bad to the bone that their name is The Three. They, they aren't the desert scorpions. They aren't like the, the, the we're going to get you bad dudes. I mean, it's, it's the three. And everyone knew what that meant, capital T, capital T. You didn't want to mess with the three. One of them um, stands back to back, apparently, with David in a pass and kills Philistines until his hand freezes to his sword. The Hebrew is not clear what that means, why, what freeze means, but he just killed Philistines until his hand was somehow frozen, stuck to his hand. His sword was stuck to his hand. Then you have another one who was running in a field patch, a field of peas, a pea patch, um, and he was running from, he was, he was, they were all, the, the Hebrew people all scattered um, to run from the Philistines. He stood his ground and decided not to run, 
And he stood in the middle of a pea patch killing Philistines until they got tired of dying and they went home. Um, and that's, we, don't, we don't know how many he killed, but probably a lot in a very indefensible place. As a, as a great story that must be built into that. These, all these stories are given in just sentences. We all would love whole books by, about these men. I would. Um, and then another one who we don't know under what conditions, but under some condition, um, he actually fights Philistines and in a single battle kills between either 300 or maybe 800 of them in a single battle, probably by himself, which is a long day of killing. It's a lot of killing to be done. That's these three independently. There's a great account in the Bible where David is sitting outside his hometown, Bethlehem, and the Philistines have apparently taken Bethlehem in some little skirmish, and they've taken over Bethlehem, and David is in a hillside outside of Bethlehem with his men, and just like we would do if you would say, you know, if you were stuck outside of Tyler, if that's your hometown, and you're like thinking about the fact that, you know, the peop- your friends are there now under their under their rule, who knows how they're tormenting them, the, you know, the girl you took to prom and, and all your friends and all that's they're all in this town, and your enemies now have taken that town, and they're, getting, they're gathering men to take the town, and while they're sitting up there drinking out of the water skins, probably animal bladders, um, which again, you, you know, Nalgene in the sun all day turns pretty plasticky. You know how a, a metal canteen, some of you have had metal canteens, you drink out of a metal canteen after a whole day in the heat, pretty nasty. I can only imagine what drinking out of an animal bladder after all day in the sun is like. Can't be too positive an experience. And so, David, you can imagine, just like we would say, oh my gosh, I'm going to take you to the noonday store. When we take this town, I'm taking you blue noonday store. Burgers are on me, right? You're going to say some version of that, and David's is, man, when we take Bethlehem, the, this, the water that runs in the wells at Bethlehem, that is cool, it is crisp. You know what, I'm going to draw water for every one of you guys when we get there. And as three men look over, there's a lot more detail I'm giving you that's there, but I have to believe that the three men make eye contact over David's head, and the Bible tells us the three of them then break into Bethlehem, draw water from the well, and bring it back to David. That's the entire description. It's heartbreaking. Like, did they sneak in? Did they fight in? Did the Philistines know who these three guys were? And they're like, I mean, take, listen, take what you want. Like, I don't... Just don't kill us. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know. But they come back, I have to assume, with a ceramic, which again means one of them is carrying it um, because they're not going to put it in an animal bladder to bring the ceramic, cool, crisp water back to David, and they give it to David, and David pours it out. Which, if you're reading it the first time, you get mad. I did. And then you hear David's word as David then goes on to explain This type of devotion a man is not worthy of. I'm not worthy of this kind of devotion. This type of devotion is only right for God. And so David literally breaks the law. It is illegal to give a a drink offering to God that is water. But he refers to it as blood. I, I do not deserve to drink the blood of my men. The devotion of my men should only be for God. How many times in the Bible does the behavior of other people move someone to worship And the answer is almost never. We worship because of the actions of God. And yet in this case, three soldiers, their devotion to David, moved David's soul to the point that he worships God with this good gift that you know he wanted and yet knew he could not possibly deserve. When I think of devotion, that's the story that comes to my mind. People who are risking it all in order to accomplish something mighty that's even beyond what they can imagine. If you're living a boring Christian life, you're doing it wrong that you're not living in this type of devotion. Now, a lot of times things compete with each other. Luke 
Uh, Jesus describes the idea of not serving two masters. Paul describes us being tra- not being conformed to the world. Um, Paul also describes that we should work for God, not men. Some things come in competition. When you're devoted to something, when something else comes in competition with that thing, it must go away. Now, everything else that falls within the line of that devotion doesn't have to go away. That's not how that works. But we talked about this with Mary Magdalene going, you're not my Lord, where's my Lord? Yeah, but we're two, two angels in an empty tomb. That should be interesting. Not to me. You're not my Lord. Where's my Lord? When Peter jumps out of the boat, he's standing in the boat, and Jesus is on the shore, there's a problem. I'm here. My Lord is there. We have a problem. So I just jump in the water. Now, this is a, this is a mindset of devotion that, that, that is such a big for us, but often they aren't. Think, for example, Ephesians 5 and 6. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing out. Your devotion to God should create certain other things. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that falls under your devotion to the Lord. That's not an independent thing. It's not because your husband's such a great guy, because he may not be. It's because God calls for it, and your devotion to the Lord calls for that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificed, died for her. That falls under our devotion to God. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. It's the same concept. Your devotion to God creates automatic overflow. Some of that is to his church. I'm disturbed, and I know some of you are disturbed when we hear, other, when we hear Christian writers and speakers sometimes um, dismiss or insult the church. And I've always thought I just can't see that going well in judgment. If I have to judge someone someday who's been insulting to my wife, it's not going well for them. And so this, the church is the bride of Christ is not something that, that, that we as Christians should ever be insulting of. Yes, she's imperfect. Yes, the church is flawed. Um, but for us to engage with that in love. So we have a devotion to one another and to, to, we have a devotion to God. John 4.23 says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Each Sunday we come, or Wednesday, or whenever, we come to see what God has for us. We don't come to dictate terms to God. None of us do, by the way. That includes staff and anybody else. We're responsible for certain things, but, but that's not how that works. We come to see what God has for us. Um, I, under, I didn't understand worship very well until I heard John Redfern teach on it many, many years ago. And referencing the picture that with, hidden within the word, the Greek word worship, is the, is the word for hand and the word for dog. And that the, the idea is that just like a dog comes to you, I did this years ago, and here some of you remember I had a dog that was um, a very a good dog and a well-trained dog and would come up and say, and, and so what I did is I just stood down here and held my hands open like this, and Molly comes running down and puts her, her nose in one hand and then her nose in the other hand to see if I have something for her. That's the picture when we come here on Sunday morning that we go, what does God have for me here? Now, of course, our lives should be lived that way. Sunday's just a time when we can't avoid it, and we get, to, we get to really focus in on that together. What does God have for me? A major part of why each of us exists. We are devoted to Scripture. If the Bible teaches it and the application is clear, we don't have to vote on it. We don't get together at church and, and vote on every application of Scripture. If the Scripture is clear, we don't do that. We're guided by Scripture first. What if we don't like it? That's our problem. We find ourselves in conforming to the, to the work and the, the teaching of Scripture. We're not always good at this. We humbly acknowledge 
All of us, I hope, you humbly acknowledge that we're not always good at knowing how to apply Scripture. But when we do know, we do. We submit there. That's, that is vitally important. We're guided by Scripture first. We're devoted to one another, to one another's families, to one another's marriages, to one another's children, to one another's friends, to one another's abundant lives. This is a part of who we are. We worship and serve together. We have the grace to try and the grace to fail. That's part of what this place is all about. We, in benevolence, we give away thousands of dollars a year in benevolence. Tens of thousands of dollars to other ministries, to encouraging one another in mission. This is, this is a small part of who we are devoted to one another. It's, it's wonder, I will tell you. I had a friend tell me once about a preacher um, who got mad because he went to go visit someone in the hospital and someone else had beat him there. And so literally, actually, like this isn't a joke, actually got mad and said, don't you ever beat me to a hospital room again. If you get there before me, you wait until I get there. They told me that story and I was like, <laughs> um, like I have exactly the opposite mentality. Please beat me to the hospital room. Like all of you be there before I get there. This is, I'm not coming to sprinkle holy water on you. That's not my, there's nothing special about my spirituality. A, a decent percentage of the room, I don't even want to guess, are, are way more spiritually deep than I am. Many people in this room are so much more powerful in their prayer lives and their devotion to prayer and their, and, their, and their ability to shepherd people well. I'm telling you, there's people in the room who are much better at it than I am. You don't want me showing up. You want them showing up. Now, if I can, I'll be there too. That would be awesome. I would love to be there. But it's such a funny mindset that we would have with that. We, we believe in the ministry of the devotion to one another. Not that there's a handful of paid Christians who do the ministry of the gospel God forbid. But instead, the mindset is, no, no, we are all ministers. We are all shepherds of one another. We all do that. And by the way, you do. It's now gotten to the point where it cracks me up, where we'll fun, sometimes find out as a staff, after someone has had surgery, and they've, and they've been to the hospital for a few days, and literally no one on staff even knows until afterwards. Somebody's like, hey, just so you'll know, we had so-and-so covered. We went and visited them, and we made them meals, and we did all this kind of stuff. And sorry, we forgot to tell you guys about that, like, I mean, we'd have loved to have come, but yeah, that's how it's supposed to work. The church is not dependent upon the staff to do the ministry of the gospel. That's what the church does. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. Anyway, I, I love that. We are devoted to one another. We teach one another's kids. We teach one another's teenagers. We disciple one another's young people. We're engaged in one another's lives. That's so much of what we're about. We are devoted as a church to one another. There is no way... That, that just a handful of people can do that effectively. Fortunately, you mentor each other's marriages. There's actually now, um, I got to find out at the deacon's meeting, is where I got to find out that there is actually a strategic effort to do marriage mentoring in a way that I wasn't aware of. That is so exciting to me to hear that. Um, Todd was sharing that in the deacon's meeting. That, that's, that is awesome. That's exactly what we would want happening. That kind of stuff. People who are devoted to a certain ministry mindset and to making it happen in powerful ways. That's all of us. Um, how about, um, um, let's see. One, we come here to experience the one holy Catholic, small c, uh, apostolic, uh, meaning sent church. The united and sent church. The united church sent into the world. That's what we come. I love coming to church. I haven't always loved coming to church my whole life. 
I love coming to church here. Um, and my, on my sabbatical, I'm still doing a write-up of my sabbatical. And on my sabbatical, I came two Sundays during my six weeks of sabbatical because I just missed being here. Um, I was probably breaking some kind of rule, but I was like bummed to miss church another week with you people. Um, some people came and asked when we became an independent church when First Baptist planted us um, with a lot of grace and generosity and a lot of generosity. Um, and like, why did we stick with the name Baptist since that carries with it some connotations that some people find uncomfortable. And I'm just, I'm just not a fan of changing names. I'm a fan of changing cultures, of taking what is awesome and good about the Baptist world and embracing it, and then taking the things that have been lear- earned or learned or just rumored to be true about the Baptist world and tossing those and building at what God would have us do. We're just not sophisticated enough. I'm not sophisticated enough to do it any other way. Um, so the typical negative reaction of people, the typical negative experience of people going to church, we fight back against that. Oh, my timer's not running. That doesn't mean I'm out, does it? No. Okay, good. <clears throat> good. Because <clears throat> I'm still on pillar one. All right, so... <clears throat> here's, the sum- here's the summary of that. I'm going to start summarizing. Huh? I don't have that. I know. You're right. I don't. I'm like, dang. Okay, so. So, and he gave, Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. By any stretch of the imagination, this Ephesians 4 passage. you have Ephesians 4 up there? This Ephesians 4 passage I think is making it clear that the role of the people who you have selected to be your staff, even if that didn't exist exactly in this format in Ephesians um, at the time of Ephesus, um, that idea is that our job is to train you, to equip you, and your job, the job of the people, is to do the ministry of the gospel. And the work of the ministry and the building of the body of Christ, we equip and we build, but we, we, we don't do the ministry except that we are Christians also, that we are members also, and equip and build one another. So we are equipping pastors. Our our goal is that each of you has a mindset of ministry on your own, that each of you has the ministries you say, this is where my heart is, this is where my passion is, this is where my treasure goes. That's, That's what our prayer is. That's what our hope is, that every one of you has in your mind, your name, dot com, ministries, and that you would say, what's on that page? What am I involved in? What am I giving to? What am I connected to? Our next pillar is hospitality. And the truth is we authentically want you here, and we want to make sure you know that. And we're willing to be the ones to try to make adjustments. This is a pillar of who we are. We don't want to isolate unless it's absolutely necessary. We don't want to create barriers unless they're absolutely biblically necessary, ones that fall under the heading of devotion. We actually, for a while, and if any of you have... Um, an, an opportunity to replace this for me. Um, for a few years, there was a marketing class at, at um, UT Tyler, I think it was UT Tyler, maybe in TJC, that one of their opportunities in the class as a grade was to come secret shop our church. And they would shop, they would secret shop, be a secret shopper, come visit our church and evaluate their experience compared to this phrase, it was the most welcoming experience I've ever had that I didn't have to pay for. That was, our, that was the standard by which they would compare. And I have numerous, um, I had about a dozen different students who did chose that, who wrote a paper on it. We made lots of changes based on that. Part of why we passed baskets is because to an unchurched person, the feedback we got was that it was very uncomfortable for me as they passed the plate by me 
and these guys were watching to see whether I put money in the basket. Now, if you go to church, you know perfectly well that's not at all what was happening. They were just trying not to lose track of the basket. They were because it's kind of they're like, wait, is, where's the basket? Do you have that? Do you? I know that's what it's really just disorganization and difficulty spotting what people are doing. Has nothing. Of course, no one's going like, where's the? Did you put money in? Pass that back to her. Pass that back to her. Let her try again. Right. None of that's happening. But if you're not church and you don't know the rules, it looks that way. So, like, you know what? We'll change that. That's an easy change. Of course we would do that if we can. A simple change like that just to help someone know this is what's really going on here. Um, you may be a stranger today, but in short time, we won't be able to imagine life without you. Isn't it weird how that's the case? You've been going to church long. There's people who you've only known for a few years, and yet you can't imagine life without them now. They were a total stranger. They still had that weird, you know how when you meet someone new, they're odd looking? You ever notice that? New people are kind of odd looking to your eyes. And so then you're like, or is it just me? Just me. Okay. <laughs> I see a lot of people going like, no, no. <laughs> Y'all are odd looking. That's all I got. Like, just, um, so the, um, the, the people get, the, the, although after a while you're like, I can't imagine life without those people. That's, that's a big part of our community is about. Um, we're willing to try to make those adjustments. You are treasure to us. We believe you're treasure to God. And so if, even if you're not one of us, you're a guest, you're someone coming through, we see that as a high compliment that you would come and visit us and want to experience even just one time of worship with us. It's a huge honor. We are authentically glad that you're here. Um, we think you are sacred. We think you're eternal. Um, we think you're an extraordinary treasure to God created in his image. And none of us are any good at this. We're naturally not good at this. We are wired to look for faces that we know and to be excited to see a face we know, we get an endorphin kick when we see a face we know, especially when we go into a crowd of people, especially if you're one of the half who's introverted. You see a face you know, and you're like, oh, good, someone who I don't have to feel panicked around, someone who I feel safe with. And so we're drawn to people we already know. We have to intentionally break that biological tendency and seek out faces we don't know and greet them. And we have to be reminded of that time after time after time, that that's why we're here. It's a big part of why we're here. Hospitality should be easy. We outnumber the guests 10 to 1 at least. And so you should, if you're a guest, you should be greeted over and over again because actually people are authentically glad that you're here. We consider it an honor. And we recognize your grandmother may have been praying for years for you to come to church. And so we want to do her well by making sure you know this is a place you belong. Hospitality is a big deal to us. We see that wrapped straight into in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being, alone, being done through the apostles, and all who believed together had all things in common. Fellowship and the breaking of bread right there in front of us. So the inspiration for devotion comes from David and his mighty men. The inspiration for hospitality comes from Abraham, the Bedouin warlord. Um, I'll read this to you, and then we'll comment on this. I've spent, we usually go over this a few times a year, just as a reminder. Many of you have heard this many times. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing up in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, he, by the way, he doesn't know this is God. This is three people walking by. O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought to wash your feet and to rest yourself under the tree, while I bring just a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. 
Abraham went quickly to the tent of Sarah, to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of flour, fine flour, kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man to prepare it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. <coughs> Here's what's wild. When we look at this and we discuss this, you see, though he is a Bedouin king, incredibly powerful, by himself he defeated five kings with just his men. The, the, the nation of Abraham must have been a massive one. The people who he led out in the middle of the desert as a nomad must have been a massive population of people. He was feared by cities and nations that where he moved around dictated all kinds of things to them. So here we have him sitting by himself in the shade of a tree. He sees three strangers walk past. So he jumps up, rushes to them, bows. He seems to be honored that they have come by. That's us. We're honored that you've chosen to come and visit today. He, he then wants to wash their feet. He promises just a morsel. Just listen, just come have a donut. Just one donut. You can have just, we'll have a donut for you. That's a donut hole. You can at least have a donut hole. Come have a donut. Three sias is one ephah. That doesn't mean anything to you. But a sia is about 6.5 quarts of flour. So six cups of flour or 1.5 quarts equal a loaf. So a loaf of bread is about one and a half quarts. This represents 20 quarts of fine flour. For three men, Abraham has something in the area of 13 loaves of bread made. That's his morsel that he promises them. Just a tiny bit of water so he gets prepared milk, fresh milk and prepared milk for them. And he kills a fatted calf. That's the Middle Eastern mindset of hospitality. It is an honor that you have come. We want to model that here. If you're a member, that's why we get out of the seats on Sunday morning. We don't just turn and greet the people in the, in the Baptist 360, okay? <laughs> we get out of the chairs, and especially in the back of the room are often guests who you don't know. Don't make them greet each other. That's weird and awkward for, for guests to have to greet one another. Hi, my first Sunday here. Really? Me too. Like you don't, they, that's fine if that happens. As members, we rotate through the room and we go find people, intentionally seeking out people we don't know, telling them good morning. In the model of Abraham, it's the least we can do. Offer to go get them coffee. Offer to go get them food. I know it's disturbing for some people from a traditional background that we allow coffee and donuts in here in the great room. It's not a sanctuary. It's a great room. Um, it's where we gather. Yes, the carpet will be destroyed. It's probably going to be destroyed anyway. Humans have that effect on carpet. It's okay. We'll just replace it. It's a... It's okay to break things, right? That's part of being people in the church. It's going to happen. There's going to drip wax on the chairs sometimes at the Christmas Eve service. We're okay. We all survive. It's the best. It's expensive. It's, it's perfect. Um, also, talk, also brought a note in here that like to teach on this at just before lunchtime is just cruel. Um, but we don't just tolerate. We don't just tolerate people. We love people. We want people here. We see them as treasure. That's part of who we are, devotion, hospitality, and finally, discipleship. As I run out of time here, Jesus came to them and said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
I'm not a Greek scholar, but as I understand it, this passage probably in English, in a way we would understand it, says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And as you make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and behold, I'm with you always. That the language is like, go make me a sandwich, and while you're there, give me some milk and chips. Or even better, go make me a sandwich, and while you're there, make sure it's got mustard and ham on it. Like, this is part of what this means, okay? That you go, what you do, what we do is make disciples. That is the role of the commission of the body of believers, is what we do is we go make disciples. If your life does not involve making disciples, you're doing it wrong. Making disciples, training people up to live, teach, and tell that all may know the living God. That's why that's our motto. There's been an unbroken string of people from Jesus to now who have done this, thankfully, People don't come because of the coffee and donuts, really, or my teaching, or someone's leadership, John's leading, awesome properties, powerful student ministry, amazing children's ministry. All these things are great, but people come and stay and grow because of discipleship. That's what happens. Every other form of church growth is a gimmick. And the minute the personality is not involved, the church dies. We cannot let that happen. It has to be based on discipleship. Each of us need to be seeking out people who we can lead and disciple. We are not that impressive, but he is, so we lead people to him to become his students. Matthew 10 says this. We have three passages we look to with discipleship over and over and over again. The first one defines it. Matthew 10, 24, Jesus said, His disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. That's kind of strange. Makes you feel weird. What does it look like? Here's the two different relationships. 2 Timothy 2.2 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. In other words, what God has taught you, you need to now be teaching to others. You go, I, don't, I can't disciple people. So you would, in other words, your argument is God has never taught you anything. If that's, what you're, that's the stance you would have to take. If God has ever taught you anything, you need to be passing that along. You need to be developing relationships where you can pass that along. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, we need to be seeking out people who we can imitate as they imitate Christ. If you don't have people in your life who you can look to, who you've asked to play the role, to have the role of being a shepherd in your life, this is part of what's needed for each of us, myself included. The de definition, here's how we define discipleship here. It is the intentional process. This is hard. Listen to this. The intentional process of influencing someone to become more like you in the way that you are more like Christ. That sounds prideful to say, I want people to become more like me. No, I want them to become more like Christ. There may be some things where Christ has made me more like him that I can then pass along. So for me, the, the man who, who I asked to disciple me for about 10 years, Newt Farah, in the area of humility, he is a very humble man, does not have to be. And when I looked ahead, I can't, I'm so far down the path of pride that I can't even see Jesus. He's so far around so many corners, I wouldn't even know how to begin to follow Jesus in regards to being humble. But Newt's somewhere between me and Jesus, and I can sometimes catch Newt before he turns. And I can at least follow Newt, because I know Newt's following Jesus when it comes to humility. Each of us need that. We need that in our lives. Psalm 71, I'm going to wrap up here. Psalm 71 says this. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, 
And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come, all those to come. That is our prayer. It's not just that we grow a church. It's not just that we impact missions. It's not just that we, but that each of us and all of us, as it says in the Greek, all y'all, all y'all, all of us, that we are engaged in raising up a new generation of believers to replace us, to grow, to, to pass us, to be people who later employ us, who teach us, who are, who are our leaders and our teachers down the road. That's exactly what our prayer is. There is still work to be done, and we must not get distracted. We must be discipling one another. Again, we're just not good enough at this to be distracted yet. And maybe we never will be. This is enough. If we could just wrap our hearts and minds around being devoted to these things, around practicing good hospitality here and on, on Sundays and on Wednesdays and on other times, and then into the community. <coughs> we carry, we have business cards that just say minister on them. They don't have a name. That's for everyone in the church, all the members. I'm, I'm amazed at how often people are happy to have the conversation about, hey, you ought to come hang out with us at our church. Here's the details. Here's the information. When, uh, when we did the thing downtown with um, the Giglio, no, yes, is that right? No, Palau. Thank you, Palau. Um, I, I, the Louis messed me up. So the uh, Louis and Louis, um, the, uh, um, the Palau ministry downtown. And a group of guys who played baseball for one of the universities here, one of the colleges here, were there to ask to do a little training for students. None of them knew why they were there. They had no idea. what it was. Their coach had just told them, be here at this time. And like good baseball players, they were there at that time, right? And so I got to explain them all of what it was about, who we were as a church, how we were involved in this, what they were doing by being there that day, and the power of their positive words in the, mind, in the, in the minds and hearts of little kids who have never swung a baseball bat. And, and uh, I know at least a couple of them have now come and visited, and maybe, maybe you're here today, um, and been part of the church after hearing that vision described and handing them that card. That's all of us. <coughs> Unchurched people need to become part of who we are. We mustn't get distracted, discipling one another, welcoming one another. As Jesus says, night is coming. Let us work while it is still day. That's our, those are our three pillars. We found, we, we, everything, and they undergird everything we do to come back to that. Next week, um, Paul is going to teach through Philippians chapter 2. This is a fundamental passage for who we are as we relate to one another to understand what Paul teaches us. So our Paul is going to teach us what the Apostle Paul taught us in Philippians chapter 2. So, whoa, to experience that. Um, someone just hit a block button or something. Okay, so don't do that. Whoever's doing that, stop doing it. Um, so that's, that's going to be an exciting experience. Then we're going to go into a series called um, The Struggle is Real um, for a couple of months and then move into Lord Willing Daniel at the end of February. So uh, you can be reading ahead. Um, all right, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of who you are and the power of your word. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the freedom in this church. Thank you for a church that so wisely chooses its leaders, leaders who understand discipleship and who understand grace, and then leaders who give us the opportunity to hire people who have that same mindset. Father, um, I pray that we um, are all looking at our own lives and figuring out what our ministries are. 
that not just at the individual level, but even at the ministry and community level, that we, um, as we are equipping one another for the ministry and then going out and accomplishing that ministry all the time in our homes, with our families, in our neighborhoods, Father, we are reaching out in powerful ways in our areas of work, Lord, in our, in our interactions with people in the community, where we volunteer, where we minister, and Lord, here in our home. Lord, I pray that we would um, be faithful, that we would be hospitable at an extraordinary level, that everyone would see it as their responsibility to be hospitable. Lord, that we would be disciple makers, that we would be people who reach out and intentionally develop their relationships with other believers to get to know you better, to be led by your spirit, to know your word. Father, finally, I pray that we would be devoted to these things and to the ministries of your church and to one another and to one another's kids willing to get up early, to be early, to serve and to teach in our children's ministry, in our student ministry and with one another. I pray that we would see that as a calling that we have as a church. Thank you, Father, for those who lead us in that. Lord, whatever you've called us to, if there's anyone, Lord, who's ready um, to follow you in a new way, I pray your spirit would guide them with that this morning in his name. Amen.